Photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives. An illustrative photographer must be imaginative. I call it essence. How does the work feel to you? Is it loud? Is it abrasive? Is it quiet? Is it generous? I'm Jordan Weitzman and you're listening to Magic Hour. My chance to talk with photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. My guest today is photographer Tim Davis. He's the author of five monographs, including My Life in Politics, The New Antiquity, and Permanent Collection. But Davis's work as an artist extends further and wider than the lens. He's a musician, a teacher, a poet, and a prolific writer on photography, whose sharp-witted essays have appeared in Aperture and Blindspot. Davis earned his MFA at Yale after completing his undergraduate degree at Bard College, where he teaches today. He's exhibited internationally, and his work is held in the collections of the Whitney, the Met, and the Tate Modern in London. I visited him at his place in Tivoli, a small town in the Hudson Valley with a population of a thousand. We had this conversation at his studio on the second floor of a barn at the back of his house that he shares with his wife, painter Lisa Sanditz. Three big prints were hanging on the wall from a new series he's been working on called Sunset Strips. Like all of Davis's work, they're visually striking and draw you in, while at the same time have a playfully critical edge. One of my very, very earliest memories is of my father and his friend, who was a photographer, lived across the street, looking through magazines in a kind of blue smoke haze and trying to find the subliminal messages in the folds of the clothes. So this was kind of a new thing in the early 70s. Subliminal messages are in the advertising and they're trying to sell us sex and all this stuff. So this is really one of my very earliest memories. I must have been three or something like that of just kind of watching this happen. Hmm. If that's an origin myth of my life, then you know it, it makes a little bit of sense of like someone who's going to then go ahead and make images and expect there to be power and potency and complication in them. So, you know, I, I notice now with my kid that the minute there's something happening over there that the adults are magnetically drawn together, he notices that, right? He notices when he's excluded, something important is going on. And mm-hmm. so I feel like that was something, too, that these images are sort of not only readable, but also they're a cult in some way. They're like a powerful, talismanic thing that's engaging the adults. Mm-hmm. And, and my father was an amateur photographer as well. The, the bloom of darkroom practice really happened in the 70s. So people were setting up a little darkroom. So we had a little darkroom in our house. So I kind of remember just smelling it. And so then you get to the, you know, that's another occult practice, right? Somebody goes into a dark room. You can't allow any light. You can't open the door when someone, when he's in there. So children are drawn to those hidden away places that they know adults have access to things that they Mm. don't. So do you start tinkering around? 
later on I did, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. He showed me how to how to do it. Um, it's funny because I always think about, um, and uh, I was born in Malawi in Africa. And my parents were in the Peace Corps, and my dad has all these great portraits he made of people at that time. And um, when I first started making pictures in a sort of serious way, I would show them to him, and he would go. Uh, these are great. I really like these. But, you know, what I like is just a big face with an eye. Boom! Right in the middle. <laughs> I just never forget that. Thinking, well, yeah, that is what you like. <laughs> um, you know, uh, my parents divorced. And then my mother and my sister and I moved to Georgia and from upstate New York. And um, that's when I think I first started photographing. And that was, uh, we had a friend who worked at Disney World. So even though we were too poor to go to Disney World. We we were we got to go down there. It was this you know incredible important thing. We were going to Disney World. It was mm-hmm. like going to the Hodge. You know it was, and um, somehow I got uh, someone bought me a Mickey Mouse camera. Hmm. And it's funny. I've been doing a lot of writing about photography. I'm sort of writing a a kind of memoir in photographs or through the photographs I've taken and I'm writing about this picture which I can't find right now and I've been tearing part of the reason the studio is kind of torn up is I've been looking for it but it's the first picture I know I took and it's just of the the street sign of my street in front of my house which was a kind of uh, Oglethorpe Avenue in Athens Georgia and it was just a kind of um a kind of like a like a what do you call it? an obelisk like a like a little white concrete pole probably about four feet high that's what the street signs were on with black lettering that went down it and I just took a picture of that hmm. and it's so odd it's such an odd thing to photograph you know you'd think like what would a child photograph and you think back to children photographers like Lartigue and you know he's photographing like things that are moving and cars and yeah. you know girls on the beach and you know like okay this is what a kid would photograph exciting moving I just photographed this this street sign and it I think of it as being a kind of um, declaration of my existence you know like here I am I've been torn my family's torn apart I'm living in this completely to me foreign place. Um, you know, everybody goes to church. It's like, what is this place? And I think of this photograph as being just a kind of, um, you know, I am. I photograph, therefore I am. Mm-hmm. Right? I see a place. I see this thing. I take a picture of it. It validates my existence. I'm always curious about the things that people respond to as photos. Like, why is this a photo? And I find that in many cases, you respond to something because you've seen it as a photo before. Mm-hmm. But then how do you make original photos? How do you, you know, how do you deal with that? What you're saying here is kind of postmodernism 101, right? I mean, if you, when I was in college, you know, people were all talking about this idea. They were saying, like, you got to read this Baudrillard, you know, uh, article in the precession of Simulacra. Everyone was reading this, this secret text. It was like Xeroxed and handed out, you know, and which said the same thing. It said, people, um, you can't see anything anymore. What you're seeing are the uh, 
images of things that you've seen before, mm-hmm. right? So there's so many. He was talking about advertising largely, but just you know, you've seen so many images that you can't you can't see a thing for what it is. And it's interesting. I remember that's a very important moment in my development as an artist because what I decided to do was kind of test that out. And I made this body of work that I'm still very fond of, but no one's ever seen it before, really. I mean, I've never shown it. Um, so I made these pictures where I walked around with a big camera, and I had this—I looked like a hobo. I had this bag of objects and my, all my camera equipment and a big camera, and I would give people objects to look at, and then I would photograph them looking at them. And I called it wanting attention. And it was kind of an experiment to see if I could see people actually looking at a thing and I would wait you know the camera's on a tripod so I'm actually looking at them I'm not looking through the camera because it's a view camera so I'm not looking through the camera I'm just looking right at them and I'm waiting to see the difference between when their eyes are looking in the direction of a thing and when their eyes are actually focused on the thing Mm -hmm. and then I would snap the picture so it was a it was a kind of attempt to disprove this theory the going postmodern theory. And, you know, all of those ideas and the anxieties that were at present at that moment about original things, whether there was anything original that could be said, if we look at the conditions that brought about those anxieties, right, they sh- they've only increased million, billion fold, right? So that now you really can practically see anything anywhere right so like i can look up any art historical reference anywhere so you know people are um it's funny um i just uh, had this conversation about having a podcast i had this idea for a podcast i wanted to call it conceptual cafe and what it would be would be people would call in with their ideas for art projects and my friend kanishka raja and i would sit there and um, critique their ideas and decide, decide whether they were good ideas. So we decided to kind of practice it. And so I called, I said, um, I, I'll pretend I'm a caller and you're going to critique me. And I said, um, okay, I have this idea. It would be to make, um, take parking garages, brutalist park, concrete parking garages, and then remake them at a small scale so that what you would end up with is like a beautiful art object that trucks in modernism, you know, just people love that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, it's beautiful. It's formally austere. Mm-hmm. And there's all these poured concrete parking garages all over the place, right? You, so you'd end up with this like beautiful art object. And it would also be um, a coffee table, right? You make it at a coffee table size. So it's furniture. Yeah. And then it's a child's plaything, right? I have a th- three-year-old boy everything is a parking garage with cars like this is a triple whammy right this is a great idea he goes well that is a good idea unfortunately someone already did that and i forget (laughs) her name right now but uh something mcintyre she basically made replicas of concrete parking garages so that was a case where someone knew that there was a precedent and i find now when i'm teaching that you know, students are trying to come up with a project and they come up with an idea. And I say, okay, go do that. And then they go, well, I Googled it and someone already did it. Which is an incredible uh, weight to have, I think. It's an incredible weight to have this uh, history at your fingertips. Of course, if everyone had had this in the past, you know, if uh, 
if um, you know Monet had gone like uh, you know I'm gonna go out in the fields and paint some uh, landscapes and then he said oh you know I googled it and uh, Corot you know also did that so mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do it anymore we'd be we'd be pretty screwed right when you do work through something you're always going to bring something of yourself to the table. Do you feel that way? I have, I think about, I have a term for it. I call it the Xanax of influence. So Harold Bloom wrote this book called The Anxiety of Influence. Okay. And um, it's essentially a kind of Freudian reading of literary history where, you know, you look at your daddy influence and you kind of kill him off. You outdo him, Mm -hmm. right? So John Ashbery looks at Wallace Stevens and kills him off and um, does better, you know, outdoes them in their own style. And I have an assignment I give my students called the Xanax of influence. And Xanax is an anti-anxiety medicine. So it's supposed to be about totally embracing your influences and making something as direct a copy as possible. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's interesting is that it's very difficult to recreate any photograph. It's almost impossible. It is impossible. Mm-hmm. And that's just because photography exists in all these different dimensions of time, space. Um, and you can't take the same picture. I like to sometimes put a bunch of oranges or a still life on a table in an intro, intro photography class and say, Everybody take a picture of this and try to make the most interesting picture of it you can. And no one can take the same picture, even though it's just a bunch of stuff on a table right in front of them. I mean, this is why, you know, we don't get tired of looking at, you know, still lives. We don't get tired of looking at Cezanne, a bunch of fruit. It's just a bunch of fruit. Right. So someone's approach to a thing is what we're looking at. That's where that's what an idea is, it turns out. How as much as what. So the I the bigger idea to kind of try to collapse some of these things we've been talking about. It's very difficult to live without influences. It, there are very few people that are living in a completely original world. The interesting thing about to go back to postmodernism is I really think that this age is an age of where there's very little anxiety about influences, that younger people, my students, they see every work of art as a kind of um, recipe where the influences are the ingredients. And I think that comes from living in a, like a digital culture mm-hmm. where everything's available. Well, yeah, everything's available. These metrics about how you make what you make and whether they're original or whether you're following somebody else... They're not as interesting to me as other metrics. For example, I think a lot about whether artwork is is um, extroverted or introverted. Hmm. So if you look at a work of art, and, and, and I think Picasso and Cezanne are good examples. Cezanne is totally introverted work. It's work that's clearly about the internal workings of someone. It isn't work that's standing up and shouting and going, look at me. Mm-hmm. And... Picasso is that person. Everything he does is standing up and shouting and look at me, look what I'm doing, look how incredible it is. You know, how original something is or how what, what its influences are, that's not necessarily one of the 
the metrics that I'm looking at are with, you know, to go back to, um, you know, how one then decides to make something or not make something or how one sections off one's world to try to figure out what, what to talk about. Um, I think these are the kind of self-awarenesses that people need, that artists need. And I mean, you know, my work is <laughs> pretty extroverted. And it's funny when I go back and you think about the directness of that picture we were talking about, just of the street sign in front of my house. I mean, there's nothing about that that's um, hiding anything. It's just putting it forth in the most direct way. And my work is getting dumber and dumber. Mm-hmm. Like it's just getting stupider and stupider <laughs> and more and more direct and, mm-hmm. and more and more filled with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, over time and you know I started out my artist artistic career really as a as a poet and I worked in this extremely difficult way super complicated and really uh, impossible to understand even by me how so well I was just interested in uh, poetry that was um, not anything like prose who are some of your big like what were some of the well, other? the poetry I liked as a kid was uh, beat poetry and E. E. Cummings and, and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Allen Ginsberg and mm-hmm. you know playful, playful stuff. And um, but at any rate, when I started writing, I got into this world of people that had taken these ideas and made them, um, had stretched them so that the poetry was totally incomprehensible to everybody and very just. You know, again, I keep going to this word occult, and I don't mean occult like uh, I'm scraping a pentagram into my chest. Mm-hmm. I just mean hidden so that... Um, oblique. Oblique, yeah. very. And um, really made just for a, a tiny audience. And over time, I, my work has gotten more and more uh, direct. And, um, you know, photography, it's, it's very, very hard to make photography that's super duper oblique people are trying and i kind of feel like the current wave of abstract photography is trying to do that you know if you make it if you make an abstraction you're essentially sort of saying um i don't have to uh say what this is and it relates back to you know the interior again is that a big wave of what you've been seeing? Yeah, there's a lot of abstraction. I mean, I feel like every other museum show about photography these days is about abstraction or process. It's funny with photography. I mean, I always find that there's so many different types of photographies, but one of its greatest powers is its ability to seem real. There was this quote that I heard the collector Sam Wagstaff say once, which was, photography is the least decorative of the arts but as the ultimate semblance to reality. I mean, abstract work obviously could be really interesting, but how does it become something that is beyond, first of all, any of the abstraction that we've seen in art history and beyond just something that's purely visually, you know, pleasing? I actually think you're really on to the essence of what this current wave of um, abstraction is about. And, you know, one thing is that Photography has this kind of sine wave of its kind of its own anxiety about its artistic status, right? So there are times when people are predominantly thinking of photography as a descriptive tool that's connected to the world. And then that's always followed by a period of 
of great anxiety about whether it's art that then uh, pushes photographers to make work that seems much more self-consciously about the process of making photographs or about an artist's vision about or more about themselves so you know if you look at say the photo secession you know in the in the in the late 19th early 20th century you have a people that are responding to questions about the validity of photography as art and they're starting to make work that looks like other forms of art so mm -hmm. you you get lots of gum bichromate prints and things that look like printmaking and works that are much more about some kind of interior emotional state and then you know you get somebody like Paul Strand comes along and Paul Strand was Steichen's student at the ethical culture school and he comes along and he's influenced by, by Lewis Hine and he says um I'm very interested in social issues and so photography is a tool about that's going to help with progressive politics and look at the world with direct clarity none of this smeary stuff and it's going to be super sharp and he then goes and influences his teachers right so the Steichen and Stieglitz start to follow Strand and they make work again that's about super clear and then you end up with F64 and you end up with Weston and all these guys and so photography always has this kind of balancing out act that it's doing and right now largely because of digital media right so suddenly everybody's a photographer right and without any effort and without any skill you don't need a special skill to make a photograph that's sharp and clear and descriptive of the world right mm -hmm. used to be a thing that you needed a skill and training to do well anybody can do it so lots of people have retreated from that idea. Well, why should I do it when there's so much out there and everyone's doing it? And if you make something that's about process or about abstraction, then it's really your own particular thing, mm -hmm. right? On the other hand, photography has a relationship to the real world that is as powerful as any tool, right? So... Um, I mean, maybe there's like scientific measure, measuring tools that are just more thorough, but the camera has created a relationship to the real world that's as potent as any in history, as powerful as, you know, Gutenberg being able to like, you know, print books. And so I think photography is connected to the real without it being connected to truth. We know that it doesn't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. We know that there's no absolute one way of saying things. Right. But the real is something that is real. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you were first getting into photography... Whose work was exciting you most? The first one that really moved me was Harry Callahan. Mm. When I think back on that work, 
I'm impressed by how uh, his practice was one of pure, wild, divergent kind of passion. So he clearly felt like he could do anything, that he didn't have to conform to a style, that art making wasn't just a kind of um, uniform that you put on and just wore, you know, it's like you're Superman. Okay, I'm Superman. Mm -hmm. I got a uniform, now I'm Superman. I have these powers, then I'm just going to fight the bad guys from now till the end of time, till my popularity runs out. And with lots of artists, that's exactly what they do, right? They get like a visual style, and then they just do it. Harry Callahan just didn't do that. He just followed wherever his mind took him. And some work survives inevitably, you know, in the photography textbooks of 4016. You know, there will be one Harry Callahan picture. It'll be like a picture of his wife, of Eleanor. But he tried everything. And I think that my own practice as a photographer is much more like my practice as a poet in one way, not in terms of the difficulty of the work, but in terms of it being occasional. So I think of myself as coming up with ideas and then working them out rather than um, having a style. And this makes it very difficult in this day and age. You meet people, what do you do? I'm a photographer. What, what are your pictures like? And then I have to go, I make projects. <laughs> it's just not satisfying. Yeah. And yet, I mean, I know that there are connections between the projects, but my practice, like Harry Callahan's, who was really my first, the first photographer I liked, and you know, Evans was like that too. Evans tried all everything. Mm-hmm. You may work in different styles, but it seems like your set of concerns is pretty pervasive. Would you agree? Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the work on the wall right now, in front of you, and. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this totally new work um, called Sunset Strips. You know, they're pictures of kind of strip malls at sunset, and they're made from elevated perspectives. So they, they're in this tradition of landscape making. So they're as... It's a dumb idea. There's nothing in this that would... Um, you know, uh, the, the idea in it, it doesn't even... It's not, it's not even an idea. Yeah. All it is is uh, an opportunity... I think it's an opportunity to go to make pictures. It's a kind of uh, gathering mm-hmm. of all my interests and, and and feelings all in one thing, right? Mm-hmm. So, I do. I we know that cameras work by you know, light is gathered through one small aperture and then concentrated into one image, right? So there's all this stuff out there, and you're concentrating the flux of the world into one tiny image. And so mm-hmm. I think of ideas and projects as having that same kind of energy as being like a way of kind of concentrating all of your interests into one set of concerns. And so, you know, you have pictures here that have a, something seductive in them, mm-hmm. right? They're, they have a sunset in them and everyone's trying to take pictures of the sunset it's mm-hmm. one of those ubiquitous things throughout the history of photography, at least color photography, to take a picture of the sunset. Mm-hmm. And I've never done it. I mean, I have never done it. I never liked it. I always felt this incredible pressure. I've never been a photographer that likes to work um, fast. I don't like the pressure of it. I like to uh, be able to kind of 
um, s- uh, swim through the world. Uh, swimming is something I've been thinking a lot about right now, but um, mm-hmm. because my little boy is learning how to swim, so we spend a lot of time underwater with goggles. But I think of it, it seems like a good analogy for photography. There's like a kind of density and thickness to to one's attention when when you're photographing. It's really different than when you're not. Mm-hmm. But um, I like to kind of. Uh, I never liked the magic hour. I have hardly ever pictures ever made at that time. And, you know, I always liked photographing like at night when the light isn't changing at all. So I'm just trying something new. But if you're going to take a picture of the sunset, you know, how do you, how do you like excuse that? Right. It's, Mm. you, there's no excuse for that really. Um, You've, you've walked into a world of cheesy and campy and corny. Right. So, you know, you put a strip mall in it and it's like an excuse to make a sunset picture. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, what you you have in this work, I think, is a kind of um, pirouette around the ridiculous and the sublime, right? These things that are kind of pirouetting around each other and creating energy like a gyroscope. Mm-hmm. And that is a thing that I think is totally consistent in all my work is a sense of like pow- power and beauty and resonance and um, criticality. Mm-hmm. And then on the other on the other side of the uh, yin yang, a, a, a kind of seductive, sexy beauty. It does have that. you know it's pretty obvious that there's kind of two strains in photography always there's the exotic and the local if you look at slides you know of people's um at garage sales and you find somebody's slide collection in there and you know people go to on vacation and they look for something new right Mm-hmm. And then they photograph also what's immediately around them, but usually on a special occasion, right? A birthday. Those strains, I think, are 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 still really present. And there's things all around us that are essentially designed for us to not pay attention to. Mm-hmm. So this kind of architecture in these pictures, these malls and 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 shopping centers, they're designed to look alike. Mm-hmm. They don't want to stand out. They want to look alike so that you feel comfortable. And I think the suburbanization of, of this country had a function of making everything familiar. You know, if you get off any highway off-ramp in America, you see the same things right away, and you're comfortable, supposedly. My sense of it, having grown up in worlds where all that stuff was present, was that one's experience is, is totally separate from that, that you know, you're sitting in front of a McDonald's parking lot and it's the same McDonald's everywhere. But the light, you know, the sun comes out behind a dark cloud. is a black, dark sky and a rainy day and then the sun comes out below it and just lights everything up and you're living in this golden, gorgeous, ecstatic beauty and there's rain water on the ground is all golden and lit up and the transformation right the difference between the the friction of the transformation between the the like inherent 
vague and emptiness of sitting in the McDonald's parking lot, eating that food mm-hmm. and having something beautiful and ecstatic happen to you is so powerful, right? It's like the friction of being drawn away from something super banal into something super interesting mm. is really different than like, let's say you're in Versailles and you're, you know, you're like live there and there's beautiful things all around you, mm-hmm. but it's just a beautiful place to live. How do you, it doesn't, it, the transformation from daily life to something artistic and something meaningful and something resonant is not that much. And I think that's a thing that American photography is particularly devoted to. What you're just talking about is also amplified through your eye and through, you know, through the conditioning of your eye and the way you see the world. Like it's a photographer's eye. Most people are, aren't going to probably see that. I don't aren't agree. Gonna look at that. I no. don't agree with that. No, no. You I think, think most people are going to look at the McDonald's in the foreground and the sunset coming. I think people are pretty moved by light. Right. Inevitably. Right. I don't think everyone is, but I, and, and certainly like as a photographer, one learns to expand one's range of what, how light can kind of work and what it can mean. But I totally agree with the connection between those retail pictures and, and these sunset strips. They're right. definitely about the collapse of a kind of a corporate generic and something kind of beautiful. And I always wrote that those windows looked like those reflections of signs in the windows looked like kind of stained glass windows to me mm. that they had this you know mottled strange effect that was like something beautiful and resonant like being in a church and having um light come through a stained glass window is something that just like you can't look away from it right i'm curious about what excites you about this process with my life in politics you have a collection of different types of images that seem like they were made in a more open-ended kind of way Whereas with the sunset strip pictures, it's almost more of a typology. I mean, what is exciting really about it is that I just want to constantly change my process. Right. But yeah, one of, one of them is like a, a spiritual practice. You wander around, you see what you can see. My life in politics had kind of two prongs. It was, it was just driving around, going on road trips and seeing kind of what popped up, where the political information was in the landscape. How were you working? Were you doing a lot of research? Well, it had a research component. I tried to go to self-definedly political places. Like mm-hmm. I remember, I was just getting up, going to a communist summer camp. Mm-hmm. And then still having to figure out how to describe it visually, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, a lot of purely conceptual photography doesn't really care very much about what the images look like. And that didn't work for me. I still had to find something interesting to say and unexpected to stay about that place. But then also it was just driving around and seeing what happened and, and spending those days with that kind of filter over your eyes. What, where's the political information? Mm-hmm. Is it photographable? Is it interesting? Are you more of a driver or a walker? Well, I wish that I was a walker. I mean, I am, I love walking. I'm actually very physical and I love playing sports and for years, you know, I've been using a view camera and it's it's tough to walk with, although I, I do it. You know, I lived in Italy for a year and I carried that four by five all over the place. Mm-hmm. I, I have a I love hate relationship with driving. I love seeing everything and I just but I do hate being in a car. I'm so I'm much too wiggly to yeah. be in a car all the time. But the title, where did the title come from? That's a good question. I feel really good at titles. Do you think about titles all the time? All the time. To me, a project isn't a project until it has a title. It's a big starting point. That, I think, comes from poetry. 
It's kind of like you have the title of the poem, you got the poem. And I know that this has been said to me in a way that's not a compliment, but, you know, there's a kind of cleverness that I'm interested in. To me, the title also is a kind of like cleverness. And and sometimes I've out-clevered myself. Mm -hmm. So I had a show, a little book called Ill Illuminations. Ill Illuminations. And it was supposed to be about like failures of light and overextended kind of sense of light. Light as a kind of weird grammar that doesn't necessarily make sense and you know people wrote reviews in major publications where they just called it illuminations no one saw it Mm -hmm. people didn't even see it much less get it my life in politics is a little bit of a different thing i was referencing something like some kind of autobiography that somebody might write Mm -hmm. but i don't think that autobiography exists really Mm-hmm. I mean, there are definitely books called My Life In, blah, 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 blah. But that's that's why I knew that it was going to, I you know, I kind of come out of making these retail pictures, which were such a narrow kind of bandwidth, right? They were so hard, like these Sunset Strip pictures. You got to go to a specific place. Everything has to work right. Mm-hmm. Those pictures were really, the retail pictures were really hard to make too. Do you think about the uh, particular kind of essence that makes you want to look at a picture more? go back to it over and over or qualities that move you do you break those down at all and think yeah what what those are i had this little vision last night of we just redid our floors and our house and we're kind of had to take all the art off the walls because there was sawdust everywhere and we're kind of putting it back up and we're putting it up in maybe different ways and i was actually just thinking about i don't know how i got there but i was thinking about this george tice photograph you know george tice no. He's another view camera guy, New Jersey photographer. Mm-hmm. And it's a black and white picture vertical of Newark or some kind of smaller city. And it's just got this car parked in a driveway and these kind of row houses. And this car is just parked at this very particular angle up. Like there's a driveway that goes up very steeply. And the car is parked at this angle. And. I was just thinking, like, I wish I had a print of that picture to put on my my wall. I I had a whole vision of the picture just flew into my mind as I was kind of arranging art on the wall. Like, you know what would be great right here? That George Tice picture of that car. Mm -hmm. And the picture, um, it just has this way. uh, I, I, I think you can explain a lot about how photographs keep your attention in the way you're describing in that your mind wants there to be patterns. The human brain is a pattern-creating machine. It loves to, patterns to, that repeat. It likes things to be ordered and organized. And the thing about the photographs is that they, in the world, is that they don't conform, right? They don't stay regular. They're irregular. Mm-hmm. And one th- quality I think is almost kind of universally true about what makes a photograph powerful is that you have a a pattern that you want to have repeat and work consistently but doesn't so that Tice picture just the way that this car is kind of off center and um, at this funny angle takes the kind of Cartesian elements of the picture like things feel logical and you know um, framed up right and then it kind of breaks it almost like a a, a sheet of glass that you kind of safety glass you kind of punch and the whole thing kind of cracks open formally um it's off 
It's a little off. Something mm. isn't quite right here. You teach at Bard now, but you studied there as well. Who are your professors there? Stephen Shore and mm-hmm. Larry Fink. Stephen's still running the program. Still does all the day-to-day kind of stuff. Amazing. What was his class like? It was um, like a kind of guru It was like um, being thrown into a completely unexpected set of behavioral patterns. It was not a workshop, really. Mm-hmm. It was like being kind of thrust into some kind of practice that you didn't you had no sense of where it was going you mm-hmm. were you were you were being asked to think about things in this completely esoteric way and it was totally transformational and he i mean I, i'll actually never forget this that that you know the very i showed up at college my first week there and i think i'm this kind of hotshot photographer and I had a car mm-hmm. so I could drive around and go places. And I remember driving up to Albany and making all these crazy pictures with 35 millimeter of, you know, like going under the bleachers in this weird school and photographing people and really thought I had just completely crushed this couple rolls of film of like just, you know, maybe in a kind of Cartier-Bresson kind of style really thinking they were spectacular and that I was going to just outdo everyone else. And then he looks at them and he goes, I think you should photograph trees. (laughs) And I mean, I just remember being crushed. Just, you know, this is just really, I mean, how could you say that? But what he was doing was sort of breaking us down and trying to break down our conventions, trying to guess to look past our received ideas of what a photograph should be. Hmm. And think about it in its kind of pure elements. Um, More formal qualities. Yeah. He's a formalist in a lot of ways. I don't know. Yeah. Well, you know, okay, so there's form and there's content. Those are, that's, a, that's a dualistic way of seeing anything. But there's another thing which I talk about a lot, which is something I, can't, I call it uh, essence. So there's form and there's content and there's essence. Form is a kind of visual structure right mm-hmm. content is the stuff that's in the pictures right the word the, the nouns that we could describe um that's in there and then and the meanings and then there's this other thing called essence which i mean i'm the only one that i think uses this but it's how it feels mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and back to that thing of how to how to look at a work of art what are the kind of um, coordinates on your compass that you use to measure out what how an art works on you? And we talked about like in, in, um, how extroverted the work is, how introverted it is. Um, I think that essence is a big part of of that. Like it's it's how does the work feel to you? Is it loud? Is a you know is it abrasive? Is it quiet? Is it generous? I think with Stephen, his work I think is very interior. It's very introverted. 
And it's trying to see what an effect it can have on you without giving you much. Uh, I think people misunderstand that a lot now because the work has this kind of, especially the older work has this kind of um, vintage. Yeah. Yeah. But it, and that's how people, res- yeah. A lot of people but it wasn't that way then. Right. You have a pretty critical side that comes out in the work, obviously. But you also have a pretty uh, playful side, too, and a big sense of humor. Have you always felt this way? Have you always felt that humor is, is, a, is an important part or looked at humor as an interesting quality in work? I'm always, you know, I wrote this essay in Aperture called Photogeliophobia, which was a word I kind of made up, but it's fear of funny photography. And I know, and, you know, the, the, art, the article is basically about how there's anxiety about humor, mm-hmm. that, that it's kind of considered light, and people are, I think, worried that photography isn't taken seriously. And I can't remember if I talked about it in this article, but I remember being really struck when I was at Yale. There was a big slide library in the art history department, and it had these giant slide cabinets, amazing, with just every kind of slides, lantern slides, and everything in the history of art. And there was painting, sculpture, and then minor arts Mm -hmm. was another one, you know, which photography was among. Yeah. So I kind of feel like people are, they want to be taken seriously as artists. And photography has almost always had a kind of like second class, second tier, um, you know, status. And so uh, you find people who are really funny and they, their lives are filled with humor, and, but it's not in their work at all. And that, you know, over time, you know, that's kind of, it's kind of been a thing that I feel sad about and it's been since the Greeks that comedies and tragedies at least have been separated into different categories and they they had literally different you know festivals that were for different things and contests of those plays for and yet it's really hard to imagine you know works there there really are no great works of art that don't have elements of both Mm -hmm. and you know, you know, right now it's an amazing time for comedy. I think it's like a kind of an extraordinary time where comics are being really taken seriously as cultural commentators. And you just have people like Louis C.K. In a way, I think of comedians as being the philosophers of our era. So, so like Larry David, for example, you know, I watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't think it's really that funny. And it's not because I don't laugh. It's because... I think he's right. right. And I always think like if I was going to do a philosophy PhD, I would write about Larry David as a, as a kind of moral philosopher. Any uh, favorite funny photographers? Well, you know, I mean, Sternfeld is somebody that, again, I've written, I've written, I wrote about this a little bit in that article, but, you know, I think his work has always got this levity. Yeah. And when I think about, you know, we had this experience this year, it was like our 10th anniversary my wife and I, and we asked a couple of people to like make us something for our anniversary. And this artist, Ken Landauer, who's really one of my favorite artists who lives around here. And he made a thing that I think if you wanted to like understand the role of humor in art, this would be the go-to object. So what it is, is it's a, a double toilet seat 
it's two toilet seats melded melded together mm-hmm. into one so it's like a, it's almost like a two seater outhouse toilet seat but they're actually together so so it makes like an infinity yeah and it's actually made like beautifully of wood and carved and painted so that it looks like porcelain yeah and the toilets like the tops of it hang down and hangs on the wall that's great so it's like it's a toilet seat you know yeah but it's infinity and it's marriage and it's like all the things about you know relationships that are like you know you're you got it's it's like beautiful and it's elegant and it's but it's the sh- you got to keep you have the shit you yeah. have to deal with the shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, why wouldn't you why wouldn't you want both yeah it's very it's very hard for me to appreciate art that doesn't have both mm-hmm. i wonder if we could talk a bit about photo books you've made several of your own and it seems that the book form offers the most interesting and challenging potential in the medium today. I am just not a believer in that. You're not? No. Really? Not that I don't love photo books and I think they're great, mm-hmm. but really I believe that the photograph just as in and of itself, not even as a print, not as a book, just what's that picture in, in its flexible form is the true thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so... There's been a lot of things that have, forces that have forced f- photographs to be codified in certain s- forms and structures. The market, right? So it's like, yeah, it used to be that there was no such thing as an addition for photographs. Why should there be an addition? Mm-hmm. You could make an infinite number of them. Mm-hmm. You know, additions come from, you know, your Albrecht Durer and you're like, you know, Albrecht Durer painted and then it t- you know you can make up like one or two paintings a year he was like God, i guess if i made prints i could make lots of them mm-hmm. and so you know you make the your albrecht door you make it as many as you can until the copper plate wears out and that's when an addition was it wasn't like we're going to limit the number of these it was the opposite we're going to try to make as many as possible mm-hmm. anyway in photography now you know there's all these codified forms but really a photograph is a flexible thing that can change shape and change form and you know you look at a photographer like um William Klein mm-hmm. was constantly like rebooting his pictures in books and exhibitions and they get cropped differently, differently and all that. So I love photo books and I think that they are a form of expression, but actually I think they're pretty limited. Really? Yeah. It's like either you put the thing in the center or you don't. <laughs> either they're all the same size or they're not. All right. Like I mean, two or three different decisions. Really, all photo books are pretty much alike. Well, yeah, but I mean, you could say the same thing about literature. I mean, it's not a you know. I mean, all books have you know the same you know hard. Co- they could have a hard cover, a soft cover, and but you know. that's not what they're about. No, no, no. Novelists, very few novelists are going like, aha, you know what? The shape of the book, mm-hmm. the way I. I mean, there are great works of literature that do deal with the materiality of text, of course. Mm-hmm. But very, very, a tiny percentage of them are going like, you know, it's really about the layout of the, you know, they don't design them themselves. Well, I You're guess, a novelist, you don't design your own book. Right. But I guess that's a big concern with a lot of photographers. And you see, you know, I mean, the whole photo book world is like this whole, you know, most people don't know about the photo book world. And then you go to, a, you know, the New York Art Book Fair and it's like whew, yeah, overwhelming. I mean, it's just the amount... Of DIY stuff right, that's but, being but produced like today. secretly, like just between you and me, <laughs> secretly we know that it's 
kind of like a bunch of bullshit, really. But it's great. It's great. And it's a great, it is a form of expression. But compared to all of the forces that aligned to get you to make any one picture, Mm -hmm. it's not that interesting, really. But I don't see it like that because I, th- I see that books that have heavy design components, that that's kind of what they're about. There is a sea of them. Books that come from different places or different kind of schools of thought have different kind of design attitudes. But the more in- interesting and inspiring and exciting potential for books has a lot more to do with uh, American photographs and what's in between the pages and how one picture influences the next one that you see. And basically using, totally agree with you on that. Using pictures as language. And I think that's where um, there's so much artistry and creativity that comes in. Because, you know, we were just talking about before how everyone is a photographer today. Everyone's making images. Everyone has their phone. And people can make good pictures. Just like people can speak good English. But not everyone can use those same words and write a poem. And I, I kind of see it being akin to that. It's like... How do you say something with your pictures? There's the one thing of going out, taking pictures in a certain style that, you know, jibes with whatever you're kind of going for. And then there's another thing, which is using them and setting the context in which your pictures can be seen. Hallelujah. (laughs) Yeah. So you're, yeah. No, I, I mean, of course I agree with you. Yeah. I guess what I'm kind of saying is that that's where I come back to this idea of, of ideas. Right. So setting the limits on a body of work and deciding what it is and how it functions. Yes, that's where I agree with you. That's where the art is. Mm. Art, photography works by a process of accrual. You like draw images together and you make them mean something. Mm-hmm. And I totally, of course, books are a way, are a way of um, doing this uh, grammatically and syntactically. So you can specifically... Um, narrate the relationship from one picture to another Mm -hmm. but it's just one way of doing it so Mm -hmm. um in the same way so so again like i go back to this idea that photographs are flexible on some level they end up living in our minds really and um their forms are changeable so that i remember in graduate school gregory crutzen would go like okay you have to have like one size for your picture like so he's working from a kind of market perspective and a conceptual perspective also like saying like if you you're aiming for your picture the size of the picture is part of its meaning mm-hmm. right and i think that's interesting i think that makes sense i don't think we just have giant pictures now because we can sell them for more although art does sell by the square foot bigger pictures do cost more than small ones mm-hmm. bigger paintings cost more than small ones doesn't make sense really for ph- photography really mm-hmm. Um, because it didn't take you any more time to make a little one than to make a big one. Right. But I I understand what he was saying on some level. The conceptual side of that is you will see the world differently when you know you're going to make a picture big and when you know how big they are. The market side of it was like, yes, we're fixing a market price for this mm-hmm. and you don't want to change it and make it complicated. This used to be you'd have different editions and different sizes, right? Um. And you can always tell like a photography gallery from like a regular art gallery these days when there's like photographs that have like you can get them in different sizes. Mm -hmm. Traditional photography gallery. That was a thing that you did. Some artists did. But anyway. You used to be able to buy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm really saying about this and I'm being a little incendiary by saying like photo books aren't like some kind of 
exalted way of exhibiting a photograph. Of course they are, and they're a big part of a photographer's expression. But to me, they're just a kind of like um, one way of organizing them. So with Crudson, I was always, I remember thinking, yeah, but your things are like in books and online and other places. Like you don't object to them being in a magazine because they're not at that scale, right? Mm-hmm. He was saying like, oh, picture only really means what I want it to mean at this scale. Mm-hmm. And you need to figure that out. Yeah. On the other hand, we have a web, you have a website, you, your thing is in a magazine and that's all good, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly that's not the work, but it's a way of experiencing the work. And so to me, again, like books are great and wonderful. I love them. I buy them. I enjoy them. I make them. But that's just one way of thinking about them, right. about images. And to me, what's really, it's, it's an essential part of a photograph <clears throat> that it's flexible, that it can change shape, change size, change dimension, live in different worlds. Right. What do you think of Lee Friedlander's books? I guess there's an example of incredible work where the books are more about uh, the individual pictures versus creating a kind of narrative to move through. That I mean, he's. I think he's clearly the photographer in history that has the most specific voice, visual voice, mm-hmm. immediately recognizable. No one else could not be anyone else. It's, you just can look at any one of his pictures, and there's just no one could make that picture except him. Right. Visual style, and so all, you know, I think that. Uh, he's then codifying the work in the in the dumbest and straight most straightforward kind of way. All right, these are pictures of portraits. These are pictures of you know self portraits. These are whatever. Right. So it's like they don't need anything else. They don't need dressing up. They don't need the complication. They don't need liter anything literary about them. So you're talking about taking photography and making it literary. I guess so. Yeah. And I don't think his work needs to be literary. Right. It's just like. It's like kind of saying to John Coltrane or something like, you know, oh, you need a more conceptual framework for this work or we need to complicate the work. Hmm, I mean, he did that. Coltrane did do that with A Love Supreme. Well, yeah. I mean, you could look at the the album, you know, um, similarly to how you look at a book, no? Well, I was actually about to say that before when we were talking about books because I'm a giant record collector. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you can see my, even my studio is being taken over by records more and more because I can't fit them in my house. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about records is like, you could, if you want to talk about books and as in relationship to records, like you could be the kind of person that looks at a book, a record and like is really interested in the cover and the, uh, and the, um, text on the back and the liner notes and you know all that stuff and i am definitely interested in all that stuff but the real thing is the music that's on the inside right right and i was in my head earlier i was kind of likening that to the photograph is like the music that's on the inside like it's like a thing that can change format and shape and the album which codifies it and dresses it up and is great and has historical value and has, you know, does have its own different iterations, but that stuff is all great. But the reality is like, as we know, the music can like live on in your iPod without that object. I love that object. I'm super interested in it. I'm obsessed with it. I'm, mm. But I'm not like, I'm not the kind of person that like refuses to acknowledge that the music doesn't live without it, right? So you can right. like, you know, an iPod is a depressing place, 
for a song if you're somebody that like thinks about it like you were talking about photo books like how exactly does it exist in the world like how does it exist in relationship to each other oh we've thrown all that out right the album is a thing like one song follows another how did that work you know who made those decisions right but in the iPod or iTunes or whatever, it's like a, just a wasteland of those decisions. It's just like anything can go next to anything else. Do you not like, uh, you don't listen to music on, in iTunes? Of course I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm saying I do yeah, listen yeah, yeah. to it. But, but yeah, I, you're just I making understand that, point. Yeah, yeah. that like, if we're going to make the analogy between books and records, <laughs> you know, we can admit that we love it and we're interested in it and it means something to us. But we kind of know that like what's on the inside is really what matters. I think we'll end on that note. All right. Boom. <laughs> Drop the mic. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so I'm happy to have you. And here we are in the beautiful Hudson Valley. And it is anything beautiful. could happen. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah. Woo. That was my conversation with Tim Davis. Join us next time when I sit down with Alex Soth at his studio in St. Paul, Minnesota. This show was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhame. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot, and we really appreciate it. For more information on the show, visit us at magichourpodcast.org and follow us on Instagram. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.